Hey everyone, I'm Wills Francis. And I'm Justin Aarons. And from the studio of Rule 29, this is Design Of, and Justin... <coughs> did you uh, hear something? thought I did, yeah. It's it's feeling a little crowded in here it today, is. Wills. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Well, it looks like there's someone else sitting across from us. Who's that? Ladies and gentlemen, I, I have the extreme pleasure to introduce you to Bob Davidson. Bob, welcome to Design Of. Hey, thanks guys. Thanks for having me in your space and on your podcast here. <laughs> He sounds a little it's always sarcastic. Yeah, sarcastic. I feel I feel the love in this room, and I just want to be here and share it with you. <laughs> yeah, Robert, we we um, appreciate your sincerity and your and your desire to be on the show. But seriously, thank you for being on Design of. Uh, you are our official second guest 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 host guest host. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I am very excited. There's few people that I would um, be more honored to be a part of uh, this podcast. Like, I can't think of any other podcast well, yeah, give us you would one, like to be yeah, on more. Give us one, one person that you'd prefer. Well, I mean. Exactly. There's no say, one. There's no one. There's you know, no there's one. This American Life. There's a Reply All. I read Blah, blah, blah. blah Heavyweights. Yeah. There's. Yeah. No. Um, Jonathan who? Yeah. <laughs> Re- really any of the, the Gimlet brand. You right. Know, I, right. Would, I would be fine to be a part of. Second to design of. Right, 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 okay. right, 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 right. But if Ira Glass is listening to this, uh, I am available. I am available at any time, uh, any place, you name it, and I will be there. Actually, all jokes aside, before we get into the show, part of the reason we're doing this podcast, actually, Robert, I don't think you know this, is you were one of the people that really brought Ira Glass into my life um, I'd heard of him, of course, but I had not listened to This American Life as often as I do now, and that was really influenced by you. So thank you for that. Well, it's uh, the best podcast out there. Well, that's high praise. I don't. Know. It is. It is high praise. So let's start getting into this uh, episode, Bob. Why are you here? Well, I am feel very honored to be a part of this because uh, I have a lot of respect for our guest today, and was. Uh, privileged to be a part of an interview we did a few months back in the great city of Iowa. That's a state. He well, meant if you say Iowa City, then it's oh, okay. the city of Iowa or Iowa City. We'll see, see how that works. Just Google it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So yeah, I'm 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 thrilled to be a part of this one. So if you were to picture the future of this episode and how people respond to it. Do you feel you being on the show would have any sort of effect on oh, our popularity oh, as yeah. a podcast? <laughs> there is no doubt. My intuition mm. really mm. on how this is going to go is I, I, and maybe just as a little warning, um, you, there might be some feedback and some emails sent to, you know, the, the fan emails that come in. Yeah, we get a lot of that. Regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be requesting either a permanent host inclusion or replacement hmm. you, you you might undermine the power that I have here uh, particularly in the context of this show one of you may disappear by the end of it oh oh well speaking what? of disappearing oh, that's a great segue Bob <laughs> see how I, I just lob that up you, you you're, an, you're just a natural Your resume is building you know on this episode uh, we're going to be exploring a seldom seen life of a, of a professional magician. Uh, this is Nate Staniforth, and he's been touring the um, 
the country really for decades, um, really got his start on the college circuit. Um, he's given a TED Talk. Um, he's lectured at the world-famous Oxford Union, and he's been featured on the Discovery Channel show Breaking Magic. Yeah, I just want to clarify r- real quick here for the audience. I think when you say professional magician, a lot of thoughts go through your mind, and our audience might be thinking, oh my, we've got Job uh, from Arrested Development, and we're going to do some interview with someone like Job, and I think that that... Um, is sorely misled and so we uh i encourage you to have an open mind here because nate is is not that no yeah and we will also put in our show notes uh links to his website and we we really recommend googling his name and seeing some of the work he's done it is truly incredible all right guys Uh, wills wills you know there's a lot of banter going on here and i'm not sure you've done this before but ladies and gentlemen this is design of from iowa city iowa nate welcome to design of thank you so i'm really excited nate to have you on our show i've wanted you on our show for a while you probably don't know that um but dave has um talked about you and i've I've seen a lot of your videos, and, and um, I've never seen you perform any magic in person. Okay. Um, so maybe that will happen today. I don't know. Not not, will, not that yeah. I'm trying to, you know, uh, you know. I see uh, what this yeah, is. You yeah. want a magic show. I just That's want a free show. I just want a free show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Private show right here. But our podcast is about people and process, and the underlying elements that usually come into this are is the concept of story and wonder and curiosity and possibilities and when I think about you and when I look at what I know about you and we're going to introduce that even more to today's listeners I feel like those are underpinnings to yeah that's familiar territory right? yeah, yeah yeah how would you describe what you do from a day-to-day standpoint or, or what you're about. Yeah, well, so I think when most people hear the word magician, they think of laser beams and smoke machines and tight leather pants and Job from Arrested Development, right? Right. This <laughs> yeah, is what you ask the average fantastic, American. Fantastic, by the way. Yeah. He was like the bane of my existence for a decade. <laughs> but that's that's the image that people have of magic. and And I think what any magician would tell you is that you know, a lot of those stereotypes haven't even been true. You know, people we stopped wearing top hats in the 1870s you know, or something like yeah. that. And so that the the image that people have in their minds is is very disconnected from the reality of the, the world of magic right now. And I don't know. There's there's a a growing number of magicians who are trying to you know do something other than just jump up and down and say, hey, hey, look at this, look at this, which is, which is I think how people think of magicians. Do you remember the first magic trick that you yeah, saw? Or that? I do, but I mean, I would draw distinctly. There's, there's a difference between magic and tricks, right? right? And, and one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. I remember long before I even knew there were such things as magic tricks, I was fascinated with that experience of, of amazement and awe and wonder. You know, I remember when I was a really young boy, um, my parents woke, woke my brother and I up in the middle of the night. It felt like the middle of the night. It was probably... You know, nine o'clock or ten, and they drove us out to the country to watch a meteor shower. Mm. And it was the first time I had seen the night sky outside of the city. You know, so you could see all the way up, and it was it was terrifying and, and sort of awe-inspiring. And, mm. 
And that to me was, at the moment, the greatest experience I had ever had. I didn't even know that that sensation was available to us as human beings, of just sort of looking up and seeing everything and, and this, this deep feeling of interconnectedness with the universe, even though it was obviously you know, enormous and I was not. Um, that's magic, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I discovered a few years later magic tricks, it didn't feel like, like the goal was never to deceive anybody I, I, or, or to trick them. Or, you know, you learn very early on as a magician that through a good piece of magic you can give people the experience of wonder and awe. And, and that same thing that I experienced out watching the meteor shower, suddenly, like here it was, not only can, can you experience it, but you can share with other people and create it. And, and that was far more interesting to me than just the mechanics of deception. Hmm. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I didn't, I didn't pursue a career as a magician because I wanted to be in show business. I don't like show business. But I did learn at a very young age that you can say something with a magic trick that it's hard to say in any other way. I wanted to see what would happen if I did this for you know, people at school on the playground. And so we were out at recess and I made the coin disappear. And the thing that I didn't know then that I have learned since is that at a magic show, at a standard magic show, there's sort of an agreement between the audience because they understand that the magician is going to deceive them, that these are magic tricks. They can see the most remarkable things and it doesn't frighten them because they know they're at a show. But on the playground, there wasn't any of that context. The students didn't know I was a magician. They just saw this thing disappear. So they didn't laugh. They didn't applaud. They just started, like, screaming and <laughs> jumping up and down and running around. So the teacher on duty looks across the playground, right, and sees this group of kids screaming and running away, and I'm standing at the center. So what were you feeling at that, sec at that moment? Were just, you confused? Yeah, because I had never seen a magician before. I had never watched a magic performance. Wow. I, I grew up in Ames, Iowa. You know, there yeah. weren't a lot of magic shows that came through. The only thing I knew about magic tricks was from the book, learning how to do them. And, you know, this teacher came over and demanded that I show her whatever, whatever I showed the students to make them scream and run away, so I made the coin disappear for her. And she just lost it. And that was like a moment. Like lost it good or lost it bad? Just you know, the same thing as the kids, like screaming, yeah. jumping. Like she might not have jumped up and down as high as the right. other kids, but but it, it had a very um, powerful effect on mm. her that I wasn't expecting. And you know, it's it's easy, I think, to to think of this as a humorous story, but it was very unsettling for me at the time mm. because I knew that it was just a magic trick, right? I knew that whatever they were responding to had not come from me. Um, that that I had tapped into something. That, that was bigger than I understood. And, and you know, it, I was a 10 year old boy. It was just a magic trick. But they were responding with a, a force and a power that, that to this day, is sort of mysterious to think about. Because think about it this way if I had taken that, however long it took me to practice that thing 4,000 times, and spent it on any other creative endeavor, right? If I had worked on drawing or playing the cello, I could have done that on the playground, and it might have been impressive. It might have even been beautiful, you know. But it wouldn't have had that that crush of, of fear and joy and, and power behind it. And that was mysterious to me. So I wanted to learn about that. And is that what keeps bringing you back? Is is creating that experience for someone else, or is that experience? I guess I'm interested. Is it more? for an, another group of people, or is it you? It's, you? For, it's for me, yeah. yeah. I And I think 
you know, I've talked, I was talking with a boxer about this, and he explained that when he was in the ring, his mind just worked faster, and that he could see farther, and he sort of became the person he always wanted to be when he was doing his thing. And that's what magic is for me. You know, I love sharing the experience of wonder with people, but, but I come back to this again and again, because for whatever reason, you know, doing magic for people helps me feel that. It helps me feel that sense of awe and astonishment, and and I love that. You know, that to me is one of the greatest experiences available to us. And and I, people find it in all different ways. You can find it in movies or music or basketball or poetry or mountaintops or conversation. You know, everybody has their own thing mm-hmm. that sort of wakes you up and and reminds you that you're alive and that it's good to be alive and and whatever it is that sets your imagination on fire. And you know, for me, it's this. So how does, how dissect for us like the, the oddness that you experience even though you understand yeah. from a logistical, technical standpoint how to pull it off? Right, the magician is never amazed by the trick. But the response that you get from an audience, like only the magician understands how amazing that truly is. Mm. There's a piece in my show right now that uses nothing more than a du- piece of double stick tape stuck on the back of my hand. Like, that's it. That's the entire secret. It's an eight-minute piece that you can do for 2,000 people in a theater. The only secret that makes it work, and I can tell you this because you could watch my show and have no idea which piece I'm talking about, right? Yeah. The only secret is this piece of double stick tape that the audience doesn't know I have stuck to the back of my hand. That's the secret. The fact that you can take that something as simple as rudimentary as that and use it to just turn the room upside down that is is incomprehensible to me in a way that i think it probably feels to the audience watching the actual Mm. illusion you know the magician knows that the secret is is usually simple even if it takes hours and hours of practice um, it's not actual magic, and and watching, sort of this craft of deception. Using that to build an experience that feels like magic, that is amazing. It's like, um, when I was a kid, I used to lay under my dad had this big grand piano. I used to lay under the piano and listen to him play, because if you sit in the room and listen to someone play the piano, all you hear is the music, right? But under the grand piano, you hear. You know, the pedal is heaving the, the, the mechanics of the, and, you know, you hear the, the sound of the keyboard and the, you, you hear that it's not just music. This is a giant, enormous piece of furniture that weighs a ton um, that, is, that is, you know, very firmly rooted in the physical world somehow give birth to, um, you know, the Moonlight Sonata or, or this transcendent piece of music. Hmm. And, and... That, I think, is the same magic that a magician feels. The idea of taking something that is, that is ordinary and dull and using it to create something that's transcendent. Like, the, the, the mathematical insufficiency of the parts to add up to whatever it is at the, the end, um, that's why it's amazing. Tell us a little bit about the type of magic you sure. do and, like, what... Um, is that in? Is that coming out of Nate yourself? Are you generating these ideas? Are you 
pulling from old magicians or you how do you how do you create an experience for an audience so there there are two answers to that um, because you know with magic you have the technique and then you have the performance and those aren't always related um, from a technical standpoint you study the great magicians throughout history you study Houdini Blackstone you know there's this great tradition in the world of magic of writing books um, because everyone it's such a small community no one wants knowledge to be lost when someone dies you know so you always are passing secrets down to the next generation so so you can go to the just you can go to a public library and learn a great deal about the fundamentals um, and then there are ways of, of getting access to some of the other material just to learn that the sort of common architecture of deception that magicians have invented over the past few hundred years so that's the the how you know you put put magic together but then there's the performance of it and you know, when I started out, I thought you had to wear a tuxedo and dance around on stage. And, and um, when I started doing shows, I was trying to be a showman. And it took a while to figure out, you know, you, can, you don't have to do that. Um, you can just be yourself and, and give what you have to give, and it doesn't have to look like Las Vegas. Um, so, so now, you know, I, in my show, it's sort of, sort of like street magic for 500 people at a time. Like I'm not dancing, I don't tell jokes, there's not music. Um, it's just, it's, it's entirely about the experience of the audience and taking that room full of people and giving them the experience of wonder, which is different than entertaining them, right? I'm not there, if they want jokes, you know, go see a comedian, if you want special effects, see a movie. The thing that a magician can do is give you that, that sense of, of sort of seeing things the way you saw them before they became ordinary. I think, ideally, you know, when you leave a great magic show, you're not thinking, how did that happen? How did that happen? Of course, that's part of it. But in the same way that you don't leave a, a musical, like you don't go to Pirates of Penzance and leave the theater saying, that was fun, but I don't think those were real pirates. I think those were <laughs> actors, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you either give people something that resonates with them on, a, on an emotional level, on a personal level, mm -hmm. uh, or you don't. And if you don't, fooling them doesn't matter. Nate began to emerge as a popular touring magician during his time as a student at the University of Iowa. And the smaller town setting was the ideal place to get the experience to take his performance to the next level. So I grew up in Ames, Iowa, which is this small, sort of liberal college town surrounded by, by fields, you know, in every direction. And I was the only act in town. There were no other magicians, it was just me. And so at a very early age, like I think I did my first paid show at age 11, because if you wanted a magician at your birthday party or at your Cub, Cub Scouts banquet or, or wherever, I was the only option. And so, you know, I think growing up in Ames was a real advantage because there was, not only was there no competition, but there was no one that I could um, be intimidated by or or dissuaded by you know no one to, to sort of tell tell me how difficult it would be to become a professional magician um, I just got to learn all that on my own and so starting at age 11 I just did shows all the time and, and you know okay so what was that show like what was your 11 year old show like you I my mom would hire you for my birthday yeah so what would I, happen yep I show up and I've got my magic case and I go on for 20 minutes and I you know card tricks coin tricks making things disappear reappear. You know, the thing that was interesting to me is that you hire a magician to perform at your child's birthday party because you think the children will like the magic. 
but invariably it's the adults in the back of the room who responded with the most sort of depth and power and emotion and it's like magic is most meaningful for people who have maybe lost it you know at some point growing up and so it was because of the kid I mean is it was this your experience the kid at some level believes it could be true yeah yeah or yeah or at least hasn't decided that it's not true right um, and and that's not necessarily true for the parents or you right. know the, the family in the background mm-hmm. and so it was just you know you learn a lot about a side of humanity that doesn't get talked about very much when you're a magician because when when you are amazed here's the thing I feel like most people and, and I am absolutely guilty of this as well go through life with some sort of mask on right there's that T.S. Eliot line about putting on the face to meet the faces that you meet mm-hmm. everybody does this right you choose your clothes your words the sort of air you give off the persona yeah. right yeah. right to make the world perceive you in a certain way and the really the special thing about a moment of genuine impossibility is that it makes you forget to be cool, right? It makes you forget to consciously be anything. All of that just gets dropped away. And so you're seeing these people in a very open, unguarded place. And, and that's, that's incredible. You know, that is a real, you have to be careful with that because, and it, and it, of course it snaps back very quickly, but there's a moment when, when you see something impossible where you're seeing everyone just open up. And, uh, and I love that. And so, yeah, growing up, you know, I would do birthday party shows. I would do Cub Scout banquets. You know, if the bank wanted to have a magician for its holiday party, I was the guy. And I think it would have been harder to, you know, I think it would be harder to become good um, quickly in a big town where there were professional magicians because you just need stage time. You need to... It's just like anything, you need time up in front of an audience to learn what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and growing up in Ames allowed me to get that more quickly than it might have elsewhere. I think for anyone who watches a fair amount of TV, Job the Magician is the archetype. Bob, Bob. he's an illusionist. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right, Wills. Thanks for correcting me. Job the illusionist is the archetype of magicians. It was fascinating to hear how his character had a very real impact on the public's perceptions of Neat's work. Any magician can make the Queen of Diamonds disappear. But what about a whole house? Job the Magician was like the, the focal point for the American resentment of, of magic and magicians. It's like he embodied in one character all that was sort of... So you, you legitimately saw that play out for you? Job was like... Yeah, and what was interesting is that that show hit right as I, you know, was making the jump from amateur to professional. And so I, Job was very important to me. Like, I, I took him very seriously. Like, why, why do people love this character? What can I learn from this? What don't they like about magic that is being expressed through this character? Um, so, so I think I think to be to be abundantly clear, I love that show and I love Job the Magician because I think you know the things that he's mocking are worthy of mockery, and you know it it took that sort of comedic genius I think to to make it very visible. From the outside looking in. 
It seems that the benchmark of any self-respecting magician is a decently dangerous stunt. Swords. Sawing someone in half. <laughs> Hold on, guys. Swords. Right? I mean, what's the mark of crossing over from small time to big time? If you're Swords. a magician. <laughs> transported man. If you're a magician. Transporting man. What transported is that? Transported man from the prestige. Okay. I'm going to ask the question, and you can do a speed round if you want, but what would be the thing you'd want to do as a magician? Swords. <laughs> Bob is Swords. Wills. Chris Angel stunt. No one knows who Chris Angel is. Everyone knows who Chris yeah, Angel is. Street magician. Creepy. Very creepy. Borderline de- demonic, yeah, I would say. Weird. <laughs> oh, that guy. Yeah, I guess everyone does know who Chris Angel is. I always thought the sawing someone in half thing was interesting. Mm. Yeah, 80s interesting. <laughs> uh, Wills, remind me to never invite Bob back. But for Nate, that decisive moment came during his time at the University of Iowa. Um, the underwater handcuff escape, where he'd be chained and locked and weighted and jump into a river and sink to the bottom. And conveniently, the University of Iowa campus has a river flowing right through the middle of it. <laughs> so we had to delay the escape for two weeks because the river was still frozen over. And it was one of those ideas that sounded great, you know, sitting around a conference table with the student video productions crew talking about ways to end the season. <laughs> Less great when I was standing on a motorboat wearing nothing but biking shorts and handcuffs, you know, about ready to jump in the water. And so I had chains around my wrist, locks around my wrist, chains around my ankles and locks, and then a weightlifting plate was locked between my ankles to drag me down to the bottom. And I jumped in. And there's this moment just before I jumped where Like, up until this point, the absurdity of what was about to happen had never really set in. It was just all very practical, like, how do you prepare for this thing? But but there was a moment just before jumping where I thought, oh my god, how has my life led to this point? (laughs) Like, what went so terribly wrong? So I jumped to the bottom, and it was colder than I can... uh, I mean, my vocabulary isn't big enough to describe how cold it was. It was just, it was awful. Um, I sank to the bottom. But there, the thing that I had, I had kept in my mind was Houdini's admonition to not panic. Because if you just stick to your training in a time of you know, extreme stress, you'll probably, if you've trained enough, you'll be able to do it. But if you let yourself latch onto the fear, you're done. So I was worked on the, you know, my first priority was to get out of the chains around my ankles um, because that was what held me down to the ground. That's where the plate was, um, the weightlifting plate that was holding me on the bottom of the river. So I got that lock off and uh, escaped from those chains and immediately started floating to the surface of the water, which wouldn't have been a problem except we had a boat in the middle of the river with a camera on it to film the whole thing and its motor was running to keep its position in the river. And so as I escaped from the chains and started flowing back to the surface, I was getting sucked under the boat towards this spinning propeller. Mm. And there's just this flash of incredulity, like, I, I did it. I escaped, and I'm still going to die because I'm yeah. an idiot. And so, like the clips on YouTube, you can see it. And, and just before I'm, you know, just before I break through the surface and appear um, free, you can see that I'm frantically, like, trying to get out from under the boat because I don't want to get hacked to bits by this propeller. So, technically, it was a success because I escaped and I didn't die, but it was... I think most people do stupid things as college freshman uh this was 
just a very public <laughs> sort of humiliation <laughs> version of that. Yeah. So what did you take away from that experience? Like uh, a couple things, you know, like I, I, I like to say that I learned that I don't have to do those giant death-defying stunts. Um, that was not the end of that. I've gotten that out of my system now, but that wasn't the last. Um, but you know, I did learn that, especially when it comes to something extreme like that, it's almost impossible to think of everything. You can't think of everything. You have to plan on not having thought of everything, mm. because you know, I could do the locks in enough time. I could hold my breath. I could swim. I could run. You know, I, I was in good shape. I was ready physically. I didn't think about the motor on the boat. And, you know, ever since then, like in a project that would require some sort of danger, that's always a question I think of, like, what is the motor on the boat? What am I not thinking of? Um, what sort of benign thing could end up killing me just right. because I, you know, I didn't plan for it. I started traveling to do shows because other campuses, you know, they also have students where people were interested in magic and, you know, I traveled to do a performance at a frat party or... Um, student activities clubs that put on events for their students and so my senior year uh, you know technically I was a full-time student but I was traveling all the time like just out and back you know driving four hours on a Friday to do a show and then driving back and getting in at two in the morning just to do as many shows as I could uh, when I finished college I learned that you could make a living doing that I've been doing all these shows for free but that there are you know entire careers that are made on touring the college circuit and that was a really easy jump for me because that's what I had essentially been doing as a student. Um, so I, I went to Los Angeles and thought that I was gonna you know, really just sort of make it in the entertainment industry by moving to LA and what ended up being far more productive is just touring on the college circuit for year after year after year just doing shows in the best performance environment you could imagine and the worst and, and learning how to navigate both of them. When you look at a magician on stage, it's easy to forget just how much work and practice goes into getting these illusions, these tricks, experiences ready for an auditorium filled with hundreds of people trying to figure out the question we're all thinking. How did you do it? I was really impressed to learn about the lead time for every stunt Nate attempts and the discipline that's required to pull it off. It's absolutely mind-blowing how much time and dedication Nate gives to these projects. Can you think of any other like job or profession where you would spend years to learn something like this? I don't know that I have ever talked to someone who has spent more time developing a discipline and or a particular experience for an audience for a short payoff. And the crazy thing to me is that you can't just like go out and do a test run if you're kind of halfway there and want to see if it's going to work in the end. Yeah, I mean, I know if you play an instrument, like you practice and you practice and you practice. And you play for your family or a couple friends here and there. Yeah, but he'll come up with an idea and he won't actually know for sure if it's going to work. But he'll spend years trying to figure it out, fine-tuning it and, and tweaking it. And it's just, I, I don't think I could have that sort of discipline. But one of the interesting things about magic is that the research and development time is so long that, you know, I'm, I'm very envious of comedians who can invent a joke in the taxi on the way to the club and try it out that night. I was like, there's a piece in my show right now that, without exaggeration, took 10 years to get ready before I, I put it in the show. So you really have to hope that you had good taste like 10 years ago when you started yeah. developing a piece. 
So what drives you to, I mean, what, do you, what does a person have to have, possess as a part of your character to persistently do something for 10 years without, I mean, you're never, you're never like showcasing it. Can you? I mean, can you share? Yeah, how do you not give up on that? Anything about that particular like the development element? specifically? Yeah. Like, is it an idea? Does it go through multiple versions? Is it just a matter of mastering a technique? What? what, yeah, what? I think all of those can be true. Um, I think you know, it always starts with an idea that sounds so impossible that there's no way it could work. You almost want to throw it out because it's just like clearly that will never be possible. Well, let's do this. As you answer this question, can you give us an example of how you walk through like an idea and then what it took to develop it? Yeah. Maybe, you know, Dave had mentioned you have a notebook. Yeah. Should we talk about the notebook? Okay. So I have, I have a notebook that I started at age 11 of impossible things that I want to bring to life that I want to make happen in front of an audience someday. Some of those things are in my show now. Some of them are partway through their development phase. Um, some of them I still have no idea. They still feel impossible. Um, I have this, I have this, I don't know if it's a dream or just this, like you, the, at least the process for me is to imagine that I'm sitting in the audience. Like what would take my breath away if I were sitting in the audience watching? Because that's a good place to start, you know. Then, then magic is a creative act rather than just um, using whatever tricks you happen to have around. Mm-hmm. And I have this. I keep coming back to this idea of, um, you know, how how could you make it so that the the spectator, the the person in the audience, is the one that's actually. So the magic happens in someone's brain rather than something that happens in front of their eyes. I think everyone thinks of magic as a visual medium, something that you have to see. Um, but, but I love this idea of doing magic that could just be, the, all you have to do is listen to it. You don't have to see it. It's, it's more magic with ideas rather than magic with props. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that looks. I don't know what that would be. Um, I have a few ideas and a few starting points and I've had a few false starts and a few leads that I think are promising. Um, but that's an example of an idea that it's not there yet. That one that we could experience on this podcast. Yeah, no, because that's right. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. If I could just by listening to you know whatever I'm saying, lead the the spectator or the listener to the experience of amazement. Like that would be incredible. That would be actual magic. And you know, when I started working on it, it was almost a joke. Like, oh, this is impossible. This is never going to work. But I discovered there's this whole brand of magic that people aren't really doing right now. And before the advent of television, there were magicians who worked on the radio. They were radio magicians hmm. who would perform over the, you know, all you'd do is listen to them. And they'd have a, you know, a, a live studio audience watching them to you know, keep everything sort of above board. Mm-hmm. But the way they structured their routines would, would be such that just by listening at home, you could be amazed. I do think that listeners now are more cynical. And I don't think that just copying that material will work. Mm-hmm. But I think as a starting point, you know, there's been a few ideas that I can take there, and, and I'm excited to see where it goes. There's this piece in my show that I do right now. It's probably, probably the best piece in my show, where. So I would hand you something to hold, but I wouldn't let you see what it is, right? You're just holding something, but you don't know what you're holding. 
Okay. You're on stage with me, and then 400 people are out in the audience. Take a Nerf ball and throw it out in the room and get six random people to stand up, and they each call out a two-digit number, right? So 16, 34, 20, you know, whatever. When you open your hand, the thing that you've been holding turns out to be a lottery ticket. And it's not a winning lottery ticket, but when you unfold it and look at it, the numbers on the ticket match the numbers that everyone in the audience just called out. And so... In order? In order, yeah. So it's, it's this... Here's why I love it, and here's why I wanted to make this happen. One of the problems that you have when you're a magician is that the audience knows that I don't have magic powers, right? So if I'm on stage pretending to have actual supernatural magic, um, there's this dissonance because they know that I don't have magic powers, but I'm pretending that I do, so they have to pretend that I do, and we can't acknowledge that both of us know what's actually going on. Right. It makes it really hard to engage the audience on an emotional level. So I'm very interested in magic that isn't actually magic, where it's just very strange. Like, if you think about that, that I, the thing that I just described, mm-hmm. there's nothing magical that sure. ever happens. You, you're welcome to just think of it as a coincidence. I don't know that that makes it less amazing. You can also think mm-hmm. of it as a trick. But, like, you've been holding the paper from the beginning, and, you know, if I could control where the Nerf ball went, that would actually be more amazing than, than the piece <laughs> of magic, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So, so it creates this this genuine moment like the audience has the pieces that they need to appreciate it and I'm not claiming to have magic powers I'm just saying this is strange let me show it to you <laughs> and and it allows and allows the rational sort of analytically driven spectator to engage with the material in a way that they might not be able to to access if if we all had to pretend that we were something that we weren't does that make right. sense yes so so when I started this I had no idea I had no idea it was just impossible and when did you start it um, I was a senior senior in high school. That sounds you right. You wrote this like on your notebook? Or yeah, it's that? in the notebook. Like, and it started out not being a lottery ticket. It started out being a dollar bill. Then it moved to a receipt. Then it moved. It, you know, like the the actual <clears throat> paper doesn't matter, but just like the the structure the of the vehicle the that shows that yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and that you know for for certain reasons changed and morphed and and this and the lottery ticket ended up being the thing that made the most sense, um, but. But, okay, so let's just think about it. Like, like, how would you do that? Like, if you don't have magic powers and that's what you want to create, where do you start? I spent a lot of time trying to figure out if I could just have confederates in the audience and if we could all get really good at throwing the ball. But I never got past the fact that I couldn't reliably throw the ball. Like, <laughs> if I can't get it to go to the first person every time, there's no way that they're going to... Like, they're not going to put more time into it than I am, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was that was impossible. And and I don't want to go into all of the other things I tried sure. because one of them ended up working. But but that's just an example to show, like, that's the process. You you define something that's clearly impossible. And then it's like those lateral thinking lateral thinking problems. Is that right? Where Where you're just trying to piece together a problem without having enough information. And, and yeah, sometimes it comes together very quickly. Sometimes it takes a decade. And, uh, yeah. So, anyway, it's just... <laughs> so, that, so, that's an idea. So, you probably have, I'm, I'm assuming, you also have time investment when it comes to just techniques. Right. Yeah, so, and methods. And, and yeah. you know, you can sometimes, like, what I ended up doing was going to... Uh, a few different methods that were used by other magicians for entirely other purposes. And I, you know, I used sort of the bones of their trick and I realized, oh, you can repurpose this and combine this with that and you don't need that half so you can leave that. But if you apply that with this new thing that I invented, suddenly you have something that mechanically feels very new 
and from an audience's perspective is new, but but it's it's sort of this fusion of imagination and research, and mm. and you know again sometimes that comes together very quickly. Sometimes the thing that you dream up in your mind. Um, there already is a good solution for how to make that happen, or, or you come upon it very quickly. Sometimes there's not. The, the biggest problem is not changing the original vision, because it's very easy to say, well, he doesn't have to be holding it in his hand. You know, maybe it could come from somewhere else. You know, it's, easier, it's easy to compromise on the um, original idea for reasons of practicality. And, and the best illusions, I think, don't make that compromise where you stick with the original vision and then make it work no matter Figure what yeah. even if it means like years and years and and lots of research and development and lots of time like that that ends up being worth the sacrifice and just because then you have something that no one else can do and no one else knows how to do and, and you can give your audience an experience that's a genuine representation of your imagination rather than something that's been hobbled by compromise all the way through mm-hmm. so Nate, the first time we met, we had breakfast right. here in Iowa. I recall you showed up with a, a deck of cards. Okay. And you were kind of messing with it before we were about to order our food. Right. And um, alluded to that you were working on a technique or trick or something that um, was going to take quite a while. Yeah. Can you Can you tell us about that? I saw when we had lunch today... So that you still had a deck of cards. Yeah. I don't know if you're still working on that or not, but... Yeah. Did I tell you what the technique was? No, I don't really. Okay. I just remember it had something to do with shuffling. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So there's this... And I don't want to get into a lot of detail on it, but there's this move where it should look like I'm not doing anything. Like I'm just holding the cards. When actually I'm doing something. Mm. And that discrepancy allows me to do something that that is important to create the illusion that I wanted to create. And it was just, I was at the, that place in, and maybe this is true of the other, other arts as well, there's like a time when you're learning a move where you just have to make it part of your life or you're never going to master it, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just have to like take the cards with you, like at a red light, you're practicing this technique and you just have to, have to internalize it to such an extent um, that, that you can do it anywhere at any time. Uh, Maybe obnoxious that I brought them to breakfast, but I was just <laughs> taking taking I that remember. move pretty seriously. Yeah. So I and I got it now. So you got it down. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's great. Yeah. So <clears throat> we're gonna come back to that in a second. Sure. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, it seems like from a creative standpoint that you could get really potentially burned out from trying to figure some of this out. Have you ever experienced that? You know, you get into magic because you love the experience of, of wonder and astonishment, but one of the things that happens when you get really good at sharing that experience is that it, it can be easy to take it for granted. You know, it can, it's like, like I had lost sight of what made me love it so much in the first place. And there was a one night in Marquette University where it was a full auditorium, the show was going by all standards, you know, it was, it was going well. And I just walked off in the middle and said, sorry, I, I gotta go. Because it was like I just, I realized that I was doing it for the wrong reasons and that whatever, whatever had gotten me this far, you know, that ship was sinking. And uh, I was either gonna quit and just go work at Starbucks or something, 
Um, but but I happened, and this is just a coincidence that I'm I'm really glad it worked out this way. When you're on tour, you know you spend a lot of time in airports and airplanes and hotels, and I just bring a lot of books and, and would read a lot. And I happened to be reading this book about traditional Indian street magic, which is just miles different than the material that I do. And and so I went back to the hotel after the disastrous show in Marquette, and here's this book, and I start looking through it and. I sort of dreamed up this adventure of, of, you know, leaving everything behind and, and going off to the other side of the world to to put myself back in the audience, right? To mm. to go see magic that I couldn't explain, and you know, I didn't, I wasn't interested in finding more tricks. I wanted magic. I wanted the experience of wonder and astonishment. And so I I left and I you know, bought a ticket to India and I bought a backpack and just sort of backpacked across the country looking for street performers and, you know, um, magicians and snake charmers. And I wanted to meet anyone who could, who could amaze me and, and show me something you know, incredible. And I wanted to sort of forget everything I knew about being a magician and, and dream it all up again. And the thing that, that I, I mean, I, I came to see my craft in a fundamentally different way during that trip. But one of the realizations I had is that travel and magic are very similar and that both push you well away from your certainties, right? When you see something disappear and you don't perceive it as a magic trick, you perceive it as an actual miracle. Like that is a very disorienting experience, much like leaving everything in your life behind and flying halfway around the world. Um, and I love that. You know, I, I, I came to see certainty you know one of the questions that I, I've been chasing for a long time is why does it get harder to experience wonder as you get older why is that harder to find and I think one of the one of the reasons is that it's very easy when you get a job even if that job is touring with a magic show right that sounds interesting from the outside at least it did to me but but I think in any job you discover the sort of grinding reality within you know whatever your outside perception of that job was and and I came to see routine as as this potentially insidious force that can lull your brain into going to sleep and and seeing things not as they are but as you assume they are hmm. and uh, and when I was traveling in India, I couldn't take anything for granted. I couldn't, there was no such thing as routine. I wasn't certain of anything. I was lost and everything was new. And it was just this, this really intense experience where I felt awake and alive. And it, you know, that's how I want an audience to feel in a magic show. So, so it, was, it was very instructive for me and uh, changed the way I see my job as a magician. You know? It's not, about, it's not about entertaining an audience. It's about making them feel like that. Hmm. How long was that trip? Oh, it was just under two months. It was like, I traveled around a lot, but it was like five, five or six weeks. So, okay. Yeah. So what about now? What do you do now to be inspired or to be energized or... Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the same things. I, you know, I, one of the realizations I had when I was over there is that I didn't want to quit. That I wanted to get really good at this. So I still tour. Um... I still do shows, uh, but but with that, 
has come an understanding that you can't just like have this realization once and then you're set for life. Like when you're young, it's easy to be amazed. When you're older, it's a choice. It's something you have to deliberately go out and find. And and you can find it anywhere, but you have to look for it. it you, you can't just wait for it to come, come to you. Um, so, you know, music, movies, travel, basketball, conversation. I, th I think you can find it anywhere. It's more about how you look than where you look. So you've kind of hit on this a little bit, but I, I'm kind of going back to our conversation two years ago. Yeah. And I know that we both have a interest in the nuances and of wonder. Right. And you know, I've put a lot of time myself into thinking through that. I think one of the spots I typically get hung up um, is that wonder is a, a, a difficult thing to manufacture. Like it's. Yeah. You can't, um, you know, you told the story of, of one of your first experiences with awe and wonder being going out and seeing these stars. Like, yeah. it, it just kind of happens. It happens and you encounter it. And it's, there's a lot of factors that go into place. You're in the business of creating environments of wonder. Right. Uh, how do you do that? Sure. <laughs> um, I think... I think maybe the most important thing is something that you just said. Um, it's really hard to manufacture, and maybe it's best not to try. Um, maybe all you can do is put the pieces in place and then let the audience get there on their own. Um, I, can't, I can't give an audience the experience of wonder, but I can put all... I, you know, I can't open that door for them, but I can lead them down the hallway and show where it, show them where it is. And uh, it's like, it's like this. It's like when you're drawing. Okay, let's say you want to draw a mouse. Let's say you wanted to draw a white mouse. You've got a couple different ways you can do that. You could draw the outline of the mouse and then you know fill in the details, or you could just draw the background. You could draw the shadow on the wall and the dark tabletop and leave this mouse-shaped hole in the center. And if you put everything else in the picture except for the mouse, the audience will look at that picture and say, oh, there's a mouse. And, and that's how it is with wonder and, and magic. You can't actually show them the thing that we're all trying yeah. to see, right? But you can put everything else there. You can set the scene, you can put it, you, 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 know, you pay a lot of attention to everything else that's, that's leading up to that moment. And then at the end, the audience will either make that jump on their own or they won't. And, and, you know, I think the better you get as a magician, the shorter you can make that gap. But I think, you know, it's a very personal experience. And I, I think if you were, I think it wouldn't mean as much to an audience if you were able to somehow manufacture right. it and hand it Here to it them. Here it is, flip the switch. It has to be something right. that they find on their own or it's not, right. or it's not worth it, you know. It, it, it's either a revelation or it's nothing. And so... Hmm. Which I think is the biggest maybe difference from what I can even see with you versus people that do attempt is that there seems to be this need to control it, to force it to happen. Yeah. But the moment you go there, you lose it. Right. And it's almost like you have to let go of it and tr trust that it happens or it doesn't happen. And that's your best shot. Right. Yeah. You, you can... 
you ruin it. Okay, you can't guarantee that it will happen, but if you try and force the issue, it absolutely won't. And so, you know, you just, it's like you, you obsess over all of the things you can control yeah. with the understanding that at the end, you have to just step away. And, and you asked at the beginning, um, what about magic is amazing for me? And it's that last jump that the audience makes on their own. You know, having been led there with nothing more than, you know, sleight of hand or double stick tape, like that last jump is still pretty amazing. So I was able to actually go and see Nate perform um, a couple weeks back. Yeah, uh, and ho- hold on, we, we never talked about this. What, what was it like? It's, I walked in pretty skeptical. Like, I'm not really like a showbiz, like go see these productions type things. Well, and hold on. Cause we, he was at our office. Was that the same day you went to see him? Yeah. So he was at our office earlier that day and, uh, blowing the minds of everyone in our office. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking in the office, we were just all, if you guys can picture this, we we're just kind of all huddled around him and he was just doing, you know, kind of close up street magic. And that blew my mind. So right. tell me how that translated to a big stage. Well, you know, I think we heard this in the interview where it doesn't feel like a huge production. There's no smoke. There's no lasers. Um, he's just out there wearing what the same thing he was wearing when we were talking to him in the studio that earlier that day. And he's like pulling black shirt, with, jeans and black and shirt, boots jeans, and, yeah. and he's doing these crazy things with pulling razors out of his mouth and all kinds of wild stuff. So uh, he made me a believer. That's for sure. Nate's currently working on a new book titled Here is Real Magic, which is set to release in early 2018, in his own words. Yeah, so I'm writing a book right now. Um, it's a, a memoir about becoming a magician. I mean, it's a, it's a book about wonder, sort of told through the eyes of a magician. And I don't know, it, it comes out through Bloomsbury Publishing in the winter of 2018. Wonderful. Yeah. All right, thanks, brother. We appreciate you. Of course, thank All you. Right. And, you know, that's a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, Nate Staniforth. Wills? Yeah, Design Of is brought to you uh, by... Whoa, 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 whoa. Wills. What is it, Bob? Amateur here. If you're going to do a podcast about someone and you're going to tell their story, it might be worthwhile telling the audience how to find them, whether in person or online. Oh, yeah, Serious, I was, I was getting seriously, Wills. I was getting there. Yeah, 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 right. If you want to know more about Nate or see Nate's work... Uh, I invite you to go to YouTube and type in his name, Nate Staniforth, S-T-A-N-I-F-O-R-T-H. He also has a website, natestaniforth.com, that you can check out to find out when he might be playing in a city near you. If you find him on YouTube, definitely check out some of his illusions, as Job would say. Our sponsor for this episode is Ink Dot, allowing you to create prints on wood, metal, or choose from a variety of stunning materials. Upload or connect your Instagram account to create gallery-quality prints. To start making your own, visit inkdot.com. And we want to thank our partner, Blackberry Market, who was so gracious to supply all of the coffee and the food for our nutrition during this podcast. Mm, especially the cinnamon rolls. Unbelievable. So yes... Visit Blackberry Market at your local Main Street, or just the Main Street in Glen Ellen, which is really the only one, but we invite you to come to it 
for this shameless plug. And Bob, I don't know if you knew this, but if you're going to do a, a sponsor, you know, kind of sign out, you should probably give everyone the website. Oh, yeah. Sorry. And Bob, also, if you can make the, that sponsor check out to Justin Aaron's and Wills Francis, that would be great. Yes, right. right. It is in the mail. Yeah. Just great. add a zero. Yep. So what's your website, Bob? Blackberry.is. Blackberry.is. And all seriousness to our Illinois friends who may be in the suburbs, please check it out. It is delicious. We also want to give a big hug to our friend Sleeping At Last, who uh, allows us to use his music for the show. And we are just so grateful for his graciousness and his incredible talent. You can find him on Apple Music, Spotify, or go to sleepingatlast.com. And a big thanks to Steve Wick, design of studio engineer who weekly or monthly or quarterly or whenever this thing comes out edits all of the mumbo-jumbo that is typically coming out of Wills' mouth and cuts it up. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. Saws it in half. Uh, get it? See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, so a big thanks to Steve. And everyone, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast, And please give us a rating on iTunes. It really helps. And give a nice review about uh, a special guest, someone. <laughs> and there's a mutiny on our hands. Yeah, there is. Well, Bob, thank you again for being our guest, but would you do the honors? Uh, sure. <coughs> Thanks for listening. This is Design Of. Oh, that was good. That was good. Yeah, I was just trying to use my radio voice. Yeah, that was a good radio voice. <laughs>